Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. Today, we look at growing coronavirus outbreaks at prisons around California. In Chino, about 30 miles east of L.A., a state prison now houses more than 450 inmates with confirmed cases of COVID-19. Officials announced this weekend that three more inmates there died of complications that appear related to the virus, bringing the total to nine. Don Spector is the executive director of the prison law office an advocacy organization based in Berkeley. He says measures the state has taken to protect those in prison have fallen short. It's not soon enough, it's not fast enough, and it's not big enough reduction to meaningfully protect a lot of the older, sicker people who are in custody. Prison officials say they've reduced the inmate population by several thousand by halting transfers from county jails and through early release of low-level offenders. Inmate advocates like Specter want the State Department of Corrections to move more vulnerable inmates out of shared housing and to release far more prisoners deemed to be low risk to public safety. Let's turn to federal prisons now. Protesters gathered over the weekend outside a federal prison facility in Lompoc. It's home to the worst COVID-19 outbreak in the entire federal prison system, with 900 inmates testing positive and two deaths so far. As KCRW's Catherine Barnes reports, many of the protesters had family inside. More than 100 activists met up at a nearby Walmart and then drove to the prison in one long caravan of cars. Many parked outside the entrance, holding signs and chanting. Let them go! Let them go! Y'all don't love my inmate, but I do! Protesters say they want better care, early release, and clearer communication. Holly Mowry's father is in the low-security facility. She says she called the prison after she hadn't heard from him in over a month. And they said, we can't tell you anything. And I said, if he was to test positive and get really sick, would you call? And... She said, we will only call next of kin when the inmate is at end of life. Congressman Salud Carbajal represents Santa Barbara County and says it's the responsibility of the Bureau of Prisons to keep those in their care safe and healthy. All these inmates, they were never uh, sentenced to death or to be put in such health predicaments where their life could be in danger. 
Prison officials say nationwide more than 3,000 inmates have been released to home confinement since the pandemic began, but won't say how many of those, if any, were released from Lompoc. For the California Report, I'm Katherine Barnes in Santa Barbara County. Voting rights advocates are pushing back against the claim that letting Californians vote by mail this November is a brazen power grab. That's the phrase Republicans used in a lawsuit they filed this weekend against state officials over plans to transition to universal mail-in ballots because of the COVID-19 pandemic. KQED's Tara Seiler starts us off this morning. Governor Gavin Newsom issued the executive order earlier this month, arguing in-person voting may not be safe during the pandemic. No one should have to choose between their health and their right to vote, Newsom said, adding there will still be some in-person voting options. But three GOP groups allege the order is an illegal power grab from the legislature and that mail-in ballots are a recipe for ballot theft and voter fraud. Election experts say voter fraud is extremely rare. So the claim that we're going to have it if 100 percent of the voters get vote-by-mail ballots doesn't ring true to me. Kim Alexander is president of the California Voter Foundation. She says all signatures on vote-by-mail envelopes have to match the voter signatures on file. But she says there are a small number of mail-in ballots that don't end up getting counted. Either because the signatures don't match or the voters forget to sign the envelope or it arrives too late. So there are actually significant concerns on my end about vote-by-mail ballots not getting counted as opposed to, you know, potential for fraud. Alexander says she hopes this and a second similar lawsuit can be resolved quickly so that election officials and advocates can launch an extensive voter education campaign in advance of November. For the California Report, I'm Tara Seiler in Oakland. We're going to stay with politics because something pretty rare is happening at the state capitol today. The assembly is meeting as what's known in Politico speak as a committee of the whole. It means the assembly will talk about a topic without having to take a vote. That topic, no surprise, is the emergency state of California's budget during the state shutdown. And it comes against the backdrop of a restless legislature that ceded quite a bit of power to Governor Gavin Newsom during this emergency. Now it's ready to take back some of that control, as KQED politics reporter Guy Marzarati explained to me earlier. We heard again and again over the last week a real desire by the legislature to reassert its authority during the budget process, which is kind of difficult in that, you know, in California, the governor's the one who really drives the budget negotiations. He puts out the first proposal in January, another proposal in May. But obviously, this is not your typical legislative year, right? You know, the legislature left Sacramento at the onset of this coronavirus crisis and was pretty much on the sidelines for a couple months. They let Newsom really drive the state's response. They gave the administration uh, more than a billion dollars to respond to the pandemic. Now they're really pushing back, uh, especially against Mm -hmm. ideas they think will continue to expand uh, executive authority. Most notably is this Newsom proposal for a new $3 billion coronavirus response fund. But it goes to other areas, homelessness, environmental protection, where I think they feel like Newsom is shifting too much of the spending authority away from the legislative branch. What do you expect the most difficult part of this conversation will be? Because we know that there are a lot of cuts in the works. Right. I think you have to start with education. I mean, that's the largest piece of the state's general fund. And it's really on the chopping block uh, if these relief funds don't come from Congress. Uh, interestingly, Newsom's budget proposes basically 10 percent cuts across the board to child care, 
UC system, the base funding for K-12 schools. And what I heard from lawmakers last week is that that idea may be equal, but it's not equitable, basically. You know, there is a real bipartisan agreement that maybe UC could take a larger cut than 10% because they can go out and fundraise, they can increase fees, they can draw more international students. But a 10% cut to, you know, all childcare and preschool programs could really force many of them to just close up shop permanently. And it's interesting to note that legislators have been like the rest of us at home in their districts through much of this. How has that changed the budget process from what would normally take place? Well, it really led to a process, you know, one lawmaker uh, called it last week, compared it to speed dating, you know, months of these (laughs) budget review hearings that they're really having to pack into a couple weeks. But Lily, I think there's a couple of factors. One is, as you note, the legislature um, has been largely out of the Capitol as this crisis has unfolded. And two, the fact that this budget could really require severe, painful cuts. Both of those have increased the desire for the lawmakers now to want to weigh in. And I think that's why you're seeing the really rare action uh, happening today when the entire state assembly is going to gather to discuss the budget um, instead of the usual process and committees. That'll give members a chance to weigh in as we really get into the crucial weeks of talks uh, before the June 15th deadline. All right, Guy, thank you so much for your reporting on this. Thanks, Lily. Guy Marzarati is a member of KQED's politics team. Turning now to the census, which, despite some COVID-19-related delays, is still underway. Next year, that data will determine how many representatives in Congress each state gets. And for the first time ever in California's history, one seat will likely be on the chopping block. Reporter Caroline Champlin has more on what that means. The state population has grown slowly in the last decade, which means a congressional district will likely be taken away from California and given to a faster-growing state like Florida or Texas. Legislators feared a census undercount could cement that fate, and in preparation allocated $187 million for a huge census outreach campaign. In 2010, for comparison, the state only spent $2 million. Didis Katagi is director of the campaign and says the intention was to preserve California's political clout. Absolutely. I mean, it's power, it's money, and it's data. Those are really the three reasons why we invest. One less seat might not seem like a lot for the state that already has the most. California's 53 representatives make up 12 percent of the House. But it would mean fewer electoral college votes in a presidential election. And as Eric McGee with the Public Policy Institute of California points out, California-specific problems could get less attention in Congress. Take wildfires, for example. You could imagine that the, the desire to get federal money to help with those wildfires would unite the caucus, and they might be able to speak with one voice regardless of whether they're Democrats or Republicans, to push for more funding. McGee says the big spending on outreach was meant to ensure California's hard-to-count residents don't get missed, like immigrants, children, and renters. But reaching those people got a whole lot tougher with the coronavirus pandemic. We could end up having a worse count than other states, given the vulnerable populations that we have here. If California does lose a seat, it would probably be taken from Los Angeles County when district lines are redrawn next year. In particular, the 27th district in the San Gabriel Valley is at risk. It's a mostly suburban area east of L.A., and the population is dwindling. But if that district got eliminated, it would break up one of the biggest concentrations of Asian Americans in the country. Then our voice gets diluted. I think there are very special issues that pertain to the San Gabriel Valley, and that's why it's so important for us to have our own representative and our own voice. 
That's Representative Judy Chu, who currently serves the 27th. She wants the district to be left alone because the California Constitution says communities with common interests should be kept together. But Asian Americans are diverse, and since they don't vote as a group, they might not be protected as a group. Hang Lam Fung with API Forward Movement knows that makes the 27th district vulnerable, but she wants Judy Chu to keep representing her. She's not a representative for just one racial ethnic group. She represents all of us, and to lose that seat, it would be tragic. With that in mind, Fung is conducting census outreach in the San Gabriel Valley, mostly online these days. So far, households in the district are completing the census at a much higher rate than the national average. But if California hopes to keep all 53 seats, everyone across the state will need to participate too. For the California Report, I'm Caroline Champlin. And finally, on this Memorial Day weekend, a lot of Californians did as Californians do and went to the beach. And for the most part, it seems we did a pretty good job of following social distancing rules. Getting outside is usually a big part of the holiday weekend, which is the unofficial start of summer. On the boardwalk at Venice Beach this weekend, juggler Michael Dorfman talked to the California Report's Saul Gonzalez about the need for an escape hatch during quarantine. I mean, it's, it's important for people to get outside and be active and to, uh, to have some uh, semblance of normalcy in their life. And I think that this is a good first step for California to uh, have people get outside. You know, I think there's a lot of tension right now in Los Angeles, you know, especially. So I think people getting outside, maybe that'll ease some of that tension. So you Take feel totally safe or safe enough at least to be here? I feel safe enough to be here. You know, I don't, I don't juggle down here for money. I just do it for fun. But I think that everybody that comes to Venice Beach needs to see a juggler. You know, so I want to be that juggler. So when somebody asks them, hey, did you see a juggler at Venice Beach? I can say, they, I, they can be like, yeah, I did. And I could be that guy. Well, Michael Dorfman, you are that guy for us today. Thank you for that. And that is the California Report for this Tuesday, May 26th, a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. Have a great day and a great week. Support for the California Report comes from California Earthquake Authority, urging Californians to prepare for the next damaging earthquake. Learn more at earthquakeauthority.com. Water heaters only. Specializing in the repair and replacement of water heaters since 1968. Licensed and insured. Open 24 hours a day, every day. Learn more at waterheatersonly.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.
Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.